Hello and welcome to a shocking episode of the Disenfranchised Podcast. We're that podcast all about those franchises of one. Those films that fancied themselves full-fledged franchises but fell flat on their face after the first film. I am one of your hosts, Stephen Foxworthy. And uh, joining me, uh, fresh off his stint in the electric chair, it's my good friend Brett Wright. Hi, Brett. Hi, Stephen. How's it going today, sir? Uh, it's, it's very shocking today. It's very a shocking, shocking. It's a shocking day. Shocking day. And I think no part of this day is more shocking than the fact that we have managed to get uh, such a high profile, high caliber, high quality guest <laughs> as as the one that we have today. Uh, you might know him from the Movies for Life podcast or from his writing at Bloody Disgusting or Manor Vellum, where he is uh, actually just getting ready to finish up an, an incredible uh, three part series on the films of Wes Craven. Uh, it's Mr. Brian Kuyper. Brian, welcome. Hey, glad to be here. Nice to, nice to be here. We are so excited to have you on, and uh, we are looking forward to all of your expertise today. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll do what I can, man. <laughs> well, I, you, I'm, I guarantee you, you're going to have much more, uh, again, high-quality things to say uh, than probably either of us, as you are, I think, a lot more qualified on this one. But, uh, Brett, what movie are we talking about today? Why have we invited the great Mr. Kuiper on today? Uh, we're talking about the Wes Craven film, Shocker. That's right. 1989 Shocker, directed by Wes Craven and starring Mitch Pileggi, Peter Berg, Camille Cooper, Sam Scarber, Richard Brooks, Ted Raimi, Michael Murphy, uh, among others. Uh, really fun little horror movie. Um, something that our listeners might not know, Brett, is that you and I, once upon a time, actually did an episode on, <laughs> on Shocker. <laughs> Oh, the early days of the podcast, and we would lose recordings all the time. We did it like two weeks in a row. We we lost a recording on our, our episode on 1979's Dracula. That was all my fault. Uh, and then uh, our recording crapped out halfway through uh, our episode on Shocker, which was going to be our replacement episode. So we said, screw it. We'll just record another episode on 79's Dracula. And that's the episode that's currently in our archives. Check it out. <laughs> there we go. But really, we were just holding out for you to be on, Brian. That's really I what guess it was. so. Yeah, it was fate or it something. It was. Absolutely. I'll take it. <laughs> Whatever it is. So let's um, let's actually start by talking about uh, our familiarity with uh, Shocker as an individual property and uh, maybe our familiarity with Wes Craven in general. Brian, we'll go ahead and let you start. What's your familiarity with Shocker and how did you come to be a Wes Craven fan? Well, it's funny because uh, I remember early she's uh, when was it? it it probably was around 1988 1989 that i started uh, buying my first fangorias and you know so seeing that hey this wes craven guy who i've knew uh, i hadn't seen nightmare on elm street yet probably but um i was very familiar with it <laughs> you know yeah. and so the name wes craven was familiar to me so seeing that he um was making a new movie and they had the pictures and there's lots of gore in those pictures, of course, because they mm -hmm. always um, sort of emphasize that uh, in the photos. And I don't think I ever read the articles uh, back in the day when it came to Fangoria. Why I just bought you? it for the pictures. You know, it was, <laughs> it was just my thing. Uh, so I, I was familiar with shocker because of that. Um, I pretty sure I saw of all Wes Craven's movies, I'm pretty sure Nightmare on Elm Street was the first one I actually saw all the way through. Um, but uh, Shocker wasn't too far behind. And 
so I've I've always liked it. I think I think it's fun. It's crazy. It's um, as I have grown with it over the years, I think there are some issues I have with it. Um, but I think what it gets right, it gets really, really right. And so, and when it comes to Wes Craven, I just have always been a fan. I mean, I was sort of the perfect age when Scream came out. Uh, I was 18, 19 when Scream came out. So that was the sweet spot. Um, I was actually in high school when it first one came out in college when the second one came out that sort of thing oh yeah that's the sweet spot right there yeah, yeah. so um so i've been a i've been a craven fan for a long time but i decided that i was just going to watch everything he ever directed uh last year when because i was at home and didn't have anything else to do right so i just watched right. them all uh including all the tv episodes and uh, all sorts of things so i watched everything in order um, and just kind of latched onto a lot of the themes that he was touching on from movie to movie. And that's sort of what led to me wanting to write. And also, you know, I, I was raised with a, with a church upbringing, not one that was uh, fundamentalist. It wasn't quite like Wes Craven's upbringing. Um, but, you know, I could see some of the stuff he was struggling with, I think, uh, whether he was willing to admit it or not, uh, mm. when I was watching these, his films and yeah, I just, I just really latched on to what he was doing in his filmography, uh, from beginning to end, even the movies I didn't like as much, I found interesting. Um, and I've grown to like some of those more than I used to even. Nice. So yeah, it's a, it's a, really interesting filmography a lot of through lines in it but also a lot of more variants than i think people sometimes give it credit for that's one of the things that i've found most uh enlightening and eye-opening about um the articles that you've written um so far uh, parts one and two out now part three coming up hopefully very soon yeah. um in this sense is is the through lines within craven's filmography that i guess i didn't really know we're there because i'm i'm a big fan of auteur cinema i i too had a religious upbringing um one that was i wouldn't say extremely fundamental but relatively mm -hmm. um so i'm you know I'm, I'm finding myself really kind of latching on to a lot of the uh the themes that you've been kind of uh, exegeting out of his work and i've been just really enjoying i i've said on twitter before because i can't say enough good things about the article because they're fantastic uh it's probably the best thing i've read so far this year and i know i say that completely genuinely i don't say that just because you're here that, honestly one of the reasons we were so excited to have you on is because the, those pieces are so i think for me just hit right in that sweet spot of the just things that i love um and and love to engage with and it's been it's been an absolute delight and i can't wait for part three well, I hope part three lives up to the first two. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I have to say, I, it's so hard to say, oh, I'm proud of the work that I've done, but I really am proud of these pieces. So, you should be. You know, yeah, yeah. they, they uh, I honestly would like to expand them because there are things I, like I skipped over several films that I think would be interesting to look into, um, you know, and to dig deeper in. And there, I, had to limit my discussion of things like well nightmare on elm street in particular hmm. to just 
you know, actually I ended up going on for a while on Nightmare on Elm Street, but, um, <laughs> but I could have said more about any of the films that I wrote about in, in the series. And so I'm, cause I mean, I talk about scream in the third one. I talk about scream, but I don't talk about any of the sequels except briefly scream four. Okay. Because it was just like, am I just going to get repetitive? So I really had to limit myself on, on what I was going to look at with each one, because they're pretty long articles as it is. <laughs> and so, they've been a lot of fun to read. They really have. Yeah. And I, I, I appreciate the length personally, cause then I can just kind of like sit with it for a while yeah. and just kind of dig in. But no, I, I, I would love to be able to expand it into a book if I can ever figure out how to make that happen. So. You've got one customer right here. If that ever happens, oh, well, right on. <laughs> I so. appreciate it. And that we'll really absolutely have you. We'll absolutely have you back on to plug the book too. And when that happens as well. <laughs> Uh, Brett, what is your uh, history with uh, Shocker in specific and Craven in general? Uh, Shocker specifically, uh, I mean, this is only the second time I've seen it. And the, f- the first time I saw it was when we tried to do the original episode. Right. So not too much history with this movie in particular. Um, but I mean, it was Wes Craven. I mean, come on. Like he's he's horror royalty. Let's be honest. Like he's, you know, I've watched Nightmare on Elm Street. I've watched Scream. I... I love Scream. I don't know if I would say I love the Nightmare on Elm Street series. I think Freddy is probably like my fourth or fifth on my top five list of iconic slashers, I suppose. But uh, but still, I appreciate it. I appreciate all of Craven's work. It's uh, I've been a longtime fan as well. So that's uh, where I'm at. I uh, I mean, in terms of Shocker, same. This is only the second time I've seen the movie. Um, I recall enjoying it a lot more than you did the first time through. Uh, and this time still enjoyed it. Still had a lot of fun. Honestly, look, watching it the second time, I kind of liked it eat more. Like it, I'm very glad to hear that. A, a second watch through improved it for me. So, and here you were, you were dreading this episode. <laughs> I was not dreading this episode. Don't lie to these people. But, um, for, hey, I, of- I'm willing to admit that for me, for me i like this movie a lot but boy there's uh, we'll probably get into it as we as we, we go. absolutely it is a flawed film yeah. but it's yeah. still very yeah. fun i would i would absolutely agree with that mm. um i so the very first horror film i ever saw was scream uh so that's in terms of just my my craven bona fides that's kind of where i started and then a few years ago as i started to get more into horror brett was kind of helping me get more into horror and i just decided to watch through all of the scream films uh, for a Halloween marathon, horror marathon that I was doing and uh, really, really loved them. Uh, I was like, this is a really solid franchise. I liked the way that it um, played with the, the tropes of the slasher genre. I, I was very much a fan of all the things that Craven did. And so then I started to dig into some of the other um, works of his. I did a, uh, a watch through of both the Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street films concurrently. So I kind of watched all of them in chronological order so I could see the different ways in which they dialogued with one another. Uh, it turns out not that much, <laughs> not that much dialogue going on there. No. Well, um, when, when they got to Freddy versus Jason, it's kind of like how the pro- reason why that thing was in development hell for so long was because those two franchises don't really dialogue with each other. No, there's, there's like nothing there. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, there's the the shot at the end of Jason Goes to Hell where the glove comes mm-hmm. and pulls the mask down. And that's literally all the dialogue you have between those franchises. Mm-hmm. Like, Freddy's more cerebral. He's a quipster. Jason is just kind of this large, hulking, he's a killing machine. nature. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there's... I, I would say Jason probably has more in common with Michael Myers or Leatherface than or the with shark Freddy. and Jaws. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> than than any of those. So I was so that was uh, an experiment that was interesting, but ultimately uh, I guess a failed one. Um, but I, I mean, I had and it gave me a chance to watch a couple of slasher franchises that I hadn't watched before, and then I started digging into some more of Craven's stuff, and just by and large, really enjoyed most of what I what I saw. I haven't, I've still not seen all of his films, mm-hmm. uh, but I've seen a number of them at this point. I would say most of them at this point. Uh, there's still, I think a couple of early ones and a couple of later ones that I I'm currently missing, uh, including um, music of the heart, which is <laughs> his, uh, his Oscar play, I guess, for lack of a better, lack of a better description. I don't know if it was his Oscar play, but I, I have a real soft spot for that movie. I mean, I'm a music teacher, so I mean, it, it, it means a lot to me. I think it's actually a uh, Streep gives a really uh, authentic performance. There are very few uh, music teacher movies that actually make me think, yeah, that's what life as a music teacher is like. And that's one of them. Okay. So, I, uh, I used to be a teacher, not music, but that would be interesting to check out for sure. I, and it's, it's, it's on my list. I definitely want to see it. It's just haven't yeah, gotten to it yet. Prob- we're talking about it on music. I'm sorry. I did it again. Every time I, I go to introduce movies for life. I call it music for life. Um, so, um, but um, we're actually doing that on an upcoming episode. And Oh, great. And I've just told, I just tell people, you know, do not let the, the title sucks. The title is awful and it's off-putting and it's bad title and it's a horrible title, but the movie itself is not what you think it is. Exactly. I mean, yeah, okay. it, it, it has some of those moments because it, it just sounds like it's going to be so saccharine and it, sure. It, it's a movie to built to tug at your heartstrings, but it's kind of tries to avoid some of the, some of the worst of that. So it's not like it's going for terms of endearment or anything no, like that. No, it's in fact it, there's some scenes where it's like they this deliberately don't score it so it doesn't you know lean into the emotional stuff too much, you know, okay. things like that. Um so there's some there's some things like that that I think work and Streep's performance is quite remarkable. Okay. But that's usually the case. I'm going to say she's she's uh <laughs> she's good and uh she's uh, as venerated as she is for a reason. So Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's a little bit of a tangent. Hey, no, that <laughs> that's most of what we do here is tangents. Okay. So Fair you enough. are in good company, sir. Do not yeah. even worry about it. Um but we do have a whole movie to get to in yeah. terms of talking about it. And so before we start talking about the specifics of Wes Craven's shocker, we need to figure out what this movie is about. And so for that, we go to the plot in 60 seconds where, uh, th- since we have a guest this week, Brian, you have graciously agreed to uh, summarize the plot of Wes Craven's 1989 shocker in 60 seconds or less. I am going to get 60 seconds on the clock here for you. <laughs> okay. So this is, this is legit, you know, you know clock stopper buzzer beater kind of thing here i mean we we are gonna time you uh but if you go over (laughs) we'll let you finish we're not okay 
I mean, here's the thing, though. We do it in 60 seconds or less, so the podcast is free. So if you don't get it in six seconds, we're going to have to like give this podcast away as oh my opposed gosh. to what we normally do, which is charge for it. So, Oh, okay. Sure. All right. <laughs> uh, and I'm ready whenever you are, sir. So okay. you let me know when you're ready. I'm it's, ready. Your time starts now. Okay. High schoolers, Jonathan and Allison fall in love, but there's a serial killer on the loose. Jonathan starts having premonitions of the killer and IDs him as Horace Pinker. Pinker kills Allison, gets caught, makes a deal with the devil, and is sent to the chair, uh, which turns him into electrical energy, allowing him to body hop. Allison's necklace forces him out of people, so he starts traveling through electrical systems. Jonathan and his friends tried to trap him in the power grid, but he gets sent into the television signal instead. Jonathan and Pinker pursue each other through TV shows until Jonathan traps Pinker, who is his father, by the way. Pinker uh, tries to tempt Jonathan to follow his footsteps until Jonathan says no, because this is a Wes Craven movie and the sins of the father will not be visited upon me and sends Pinker off to the abyss to the abyss of a shut off electronic device done oh man eight seconds to spare so good well done sir well done and i don't think you missed like anything that was all (laughs) that was all pretty pretty well done it might have been the best plot in 60 seconds we've ever had that was that was a very good one like very succinct mm, excellent well done sir well done so yeah let's get into uh this movie so from my understanding uh, this movie came to be as a result of the, um, I would say the, I would say because of the success of the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, and and I think the the lack of uh, of interest perhaps or the lack of uh, Craven didn't like the way that Freddy was continually portrayed in those sequels. No. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's a that's an understatement and he also he also had sold off his uh his rights to freddie to new line um uh, because he just wanted to get his damn movie made right you yeah, know which i don't blame him yeah because he was at a point after okay so after swamp thing he um took a break which because swamp thing was arduous and uh he kind of waited too long and he had written nightmare on elm street and he was shopping it around and no one was interested until uh, he he was at a point where he said he would have made uh godzilla goes to paris if it was offered to him <laughs> um but instead uh he was told okay we can make the hills have eyes part two so he made that which got shelved and then and probably for good reason and then um he made a tv movie called invitation to hell and then this was all 1984 and then nightmare on elm street got greenlit so it was because bob shea kind of was the only person that believed in the thing um so yeah the house that freddie built new line for sure Mm. but it could have been also been the house that freddie killed if there was, it was a major risk uh, to, to make that movie. And the fact that it paid off and built and led to, you know, like the Lord of the Rings is kind of amazing. Um, That is absolutely insane. And one of those things that no one really talks, I I guess there are some circles where that is talked about, but it's something I've 
only recently heard mentioned. I think a lot of it was due to your article. Oh yeah. Um, so what, what it was is just um, this whole sense with, he had to essentially sell his soul more or less, so to speak uh, to, to get nightmare on Elm street made. And so after that was a big success, he didn't have any, any, all he had his director's salary from the movie. That was it. Uh, he didn't just have another it. in a long line of Hollywood studios screwing over filmmakers. Well, and but the thing is, to Bob Shea's credit, he did he did fix that. He did rectify that, um, and they ended up working together again. Actually, they worked together technically on Nightmare Three as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Craven had a was a co writer credit on that one. Yeah, he uh, he and Bruce Wagner wrote the first script of it, which is a bonkers script. Um, I have to say, it's uh, there's a novelization out there um, that is. Uh, based on that script and it's nuts it's okay. it's crazy <laughs> it's 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 a lot of fun though uh so it's worth it's worth checking out if you All can right. if you can read the script um and then of course new nightmare right which is i think my favorite of the nightmare on elm street franchise for sure yeah. it's kind of his first foray into that meta horror that he would really embrace with uh uh with the scream movies yeah uh, so what he was doing, uh, so after Nightmare, he made uh, Deadly Friend. He made a couple other things. And then he did, uh, Shocker was his first movie with the live films. So he had done, I guess he had done um, some TV and he had also done like Twilight Zone episodes and stuff, which are pretty good. Some of those are pretty good and from the 80s. And then uh, The Serpent and the Rainbow, which I think is uh really interesting movie but shocker was his first movie with a live films now alive gave him basically full creative latitude if you can make your movie in this budget you can do whatever you want and so Which he nice. yeah so he was like okay so to have full autonomy i want to see if i can capture lightning in the bottle again and create a series uh that can rival nightmare on elm street And with a character every bit as menacing and bonkers as Freddy Krueger. Yeah. There's a lot of similarities between Horace Pinker and Freddy Krueger. There are a lot. Um, The whole plastic man idea, you know, that he can sort of turn into a chair and, (laughs) you know, become Um, that. Yeah. You know. That's I think that's one of the more more obvious uh, homages there. But, you know, the, the fact that, they're both accessible through dreams, et cetera. Um, there's this, there's a lot of similarities there and it's, it feels very much like Craven is in dialogue with the later entries specifically of the nightmare franchise. Yeah. He's trying to say, you know, I think he's said you're, you're making, this is how you do. He, he's trying to do humor and quips in this movie in a way that is like dark, super dark gallows kind of humor that, freddie did in the original mm-hmm. you know which you know like he does some things in the original like he wears tina's face and different things like that he wasn't um, as quippy as he became later on but no it, he I became mean, he, he became action quippy. hero quippy he became you know yes. uh you know welcome to prime time bitch which is a great line but after that it started to get a little bit um over the top you know then everyone's a bitch it's a whole thing yeah it's a whole thing <laughs> So reset it, it was I th- seems to me to be a, a, 
an attempt to reset a franchise uh, in his image. And he had intended, if Shocker was successful enough, to um, go on and make sequels to it um, himself. It wouldn't have been like passing the baton kind of thing like it was with Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and he was brought in to... I, I Apparently he had done something for Nightmare 2 but they went in the different in in the direction they went in instead. I had heard that his pitch for Nightmare 2 was essentially what would end up becoming New Nightmare. Like he wanted mm. to take a really meta approach to it right from the get-go and they were oh. like that's too weird. So uh, we're going to we're going to do this other equally weird thing with Freddy's Revenge um which is weird in I guess a more classic slasher movie way but yeah it's it's a it is quite a departure from what the first movie is trying to do i mean people will say oh there are no rules yeah the, the rules are pretty well established in the first movie they are you know freddie only exists in dreams that's mm -hmm. something and so for him to come out into the real world is um i know people love the pool scene and i don't i understand i, I gotta say i don't think it's scary to have because robert england is you know like five eight you know he's not <laughs> he's not this massive dude that's you know he's just kind of got all these teenagers towering over him while he's running around chasing them and it, it just doesn't work for me except for the whole standing in front of the flames you are my, all my children now i love that part but, that's great yeah yeah but but all in all i i like nightmare 2 more than i used to but um it just it's okay to me it, it's i think what craven had in mind was much darker and Though I think Freddy's still scary in two. Um, I think he's scarier than two than he is in three. I think so too. For sure. Because yeah. he's still this kind of menacing figure. And three, you know, honestly, it's the it's primetime bitch. That's where you start to see the turn in Freddy toward this kind yeah. of more campy, goofy, action hero, quippy kind of character. Yeah. And they also, you know, take away his, the, mystery of his evil by making him the bastard son of a hundred maniacs when you suddenly give someone a reason for being evil it's you know it's like they say in scream you know it's scarier when there's no motive yeah and which is why michael myers is probably one of the most quintessential slashers because he's just a force of evil it's what every horror franchise eventually ends up doing is they try to add lore to the slasher they gotta tell you why and normally i like that but in horror movies, I never like that. I usually love lore, just not in horror movies. Just stop it, please. <laughs> yeah, it's never to good. Me, to me, the bastard son of a hundred maniacs thing is the sister twist from Halloween 2. Yes. You know, it, it's just, it's like, oh God, now we have a reason. Now what's the point? It's the thing <laughs> that know? kind of reshapes and recontextualizes the entire rest of the franchise mm -hmm. to the extent that you can't get that original magic back again without mm -hmm. completely rewriting the whole thing, which with Halloween, they did several times with Freddie. Mm -hmm. They only tried it with the remake in uh, which we will talk about one of these days on this podcast. Um, and quite frankly, that was ill-advised from the jump. That one's a slog. I actually did an yeah. episode of Pod and the Pendulum on that on that movie, and it's just I hadn't seen it in years, and went, "Oh God, this is really bad." It's it's this really rough, really rough. Um, for yeah, sure, it was Wes Craven's least favorite in the franchise, and of all the nightmare films, and he notoriously didn't like any of them except his. So right. yeah, 
<laughs> so it was yeah and I, i'll be honest with you his are the best ones um the ones that he had any involvement with at all i would say seven one and three in that order are probably the top three in that franchise for me personally i know a lot of people think three mm-hmm. is the best and a lot of people really stand for three but yeah for me it's it's one then seven but they're awfully close and then i i like three a lot and i like i actually really like four four's really grown on me um i don't know why <laughs> hey you like what you like and you I, should I make no apologies to, for that i find it to be a lot of fun i find well, it to be a lot of fun and five is where the franchise kind of starts to go off the rails and uh-huh. five comes out in 1989 mm-hmm. the same year that shocker does yeah. and so it's interesting that you've got these this new Wes Craven movie that's in dialogue with his old franchise. And then the latest most panned and most generally reviled of all the films in the franchise uh, coming out the same year and nightmare five still does better than shocker, like at the box office, which is, which is kind of a crime um, because shocker to me is an infinitely better movie than nightmare five. Yes. Um, it's just because, you know, it's always harder to get a new customer than to retain an existing one, right? That's yep. what they say. And so I think that's what's happening. And part of the problem I see with Shocker is that, okay, so Craven spent a really long time refining the script for Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, it was taken every everywhere he was shopping it all over the place for years and was he able to so reshape it to do so yeah yeah he was constantly reshaping it thinking about it and paring it down that is the key because he took out all the backstory of freddy you get it comes down to essentially just one line just one short conversation that tells us anything about his backstory at all and i think you just have too much of that in shocker you have too much of the before the electric chair. There's like a full half an hour, 40 minutes before yeah. he even gets into the chair, which is, of course, the origin story for the character. Yeah. Um, which is too much time. Yeah. And it, that's it my feels unfocused. That's, that's my major complaint, yeah. I think, is the whole there's thing a good feels tw- unfocused. There's a good 20 minutes too much in this movie um, that I think with another pass on the either the editing table or before that just on the script level um would have helped this a lot because i think i think that what you want to do if you're going to create a franchise is you want to leave space to explore stuff you haven't talked about yet right mm-hmm. so i think i think there's more to explore after this but the whole point of the movie is like media and television and being bombarded with all this violence and stuff on tv and we don't even get to that till like the last 10 minutes i yes and then that again that's i feel like that's the part that's executed best in the movie like that's the part where i'm just like locked in this is incredible i love every second of this and everything leading up to that i'm kind of like i mean yeah okay looking at my watch you know all right let's Let's land the plane here, Wes. But, but it, it, yeah, it just needs it just needs to be tighter in that first section. And the mm-hmm. first, I mean, the first two acts of this could just use that much more um, finessing to get them to get them in just locked in. And it would be a, just an incredible film. It would be a romp and a fun ride. Uh, probably would have gotten its sequels. Honestly. It probably would have gotten its sequels. Yeah, I think so. 
Um, yeah, I, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, um, and to hear Craven say it, this film did get pretty cut up by the, uh, by the censors in order to get it down to an R rating. But Mm -hmm. honestly, it feels like it could have used another couple passes in the editing room. Um, like there's a, a cup, there's a throwaway line and then a scene in the prison with Horace Pinker, um, being into like voodoo and witchcraft and black Uh magic and the only thing that does is give us an idea of why he's able to do what he's able to do in the back half of the film but beyond though that one throwaway line and then that scene where he's got the black candles all lit in front of him with the jumper cables attached to his hands um i mean we we could just say i don't know he's he's he made it we just say he made a deal with the devil without having all that other stuff in there which feels fairly unnecessary i suppose well there's a little bit of clue to it in his lair um there are a lot of hell lairs in this period of of craven um you know the boiler room and the uh you know patro's lair in uh serpent in the rainbow this one i think is a lot of fun frankly because it's like this tv repair shop and there's the walls of all the of all the TVs on the sides, they're all blasting, you know, pictures from the Vietnam War and all like sorts no of things. Like no TV repair shop I have ever seen. In my yeah, life. it's nuts. And and there's secret passages and and there's like hanging mummified cats and all sorts of weird shit in there. And it's it's just wild. And so I actually think there's there's hints of all that black magic stuff. Uh, in there too but i think if it if there wasn't so much in between there um you, that would maybe pop out a little bit more i and, mean because I, I was thinking between this and child's play you've got two killers whose whole uh raison d'etre is their slashers but also into black magic which enables them to live on after death um, which kind of amuses me to some degree that Chucky was the one that caught on, but Horace wasn't. I think that's. Yeah. More, I think it's this more. Um, it's more prevalent. Chucky in was play. maybe also a little bit. It is more prevalent in Child's Play. Yeah, I think I would agree. Yeah, for sure. And I think another thing with um with Child's Play is it's a more novel concept. Mm. Um, whereas uh, Pinker is maybe he's a little bit too much like Freddy Krueger. I think he's got just a few too many things going on um, when all is said and done. Like, I think there's just too many layers to too much in the soup, you know, mm-hmm. at, at the end of the day. Cause again, it, this feels very unfocused. Like Craven didn't know where to cut, where to skip, where to pare down, where to lean, you know, lean into things and where to lean out. And so the whole thing just kind of feels a bit of a mess. And I think Pinker is, Pinker's character kind of becomes a part of that as well. Yeah, I, I would hundred percent agree with that. Um, you know, like the, the limp, um, you know, I guess Mitch Pileggi had his own limp sort of worked out and then said, Oh, well, you got to do this one because the little girl that we filmed, who is not an experienced actor, we did her scenes first and this is the way she limped. So you got to limp that way. Yeah. That is like, Oh God. <laughs> I mean, that's one of those things where you just go, Wes, um you did it backwards man you did it backwards on that one i mean love much love for mr craven but um that's that's a shame because i would have loved to see what 
what Pelleggi would have been able to do with the character if he had just been able to do the character. As and Pelleggi came to work on this movie. Oh, yeah. Like, he showed up. Oh, no doubt. I think Pelleggi is as great in this role for what when he's really given that free reign as England is as Kruger in a lot of ways. Yeah. He's as evil. He's as letting those things happen as anyone is. No, but he's he's playing up, I think, the villainous nature of the character. And again, really leaning into it. He's he's making a meal out of this thing, which is really fun. And I think of all, any of the performances mm-hmm. in the movie, I think he his is the one that I think really helps kind of... I don't know. His is the one that pulls me in the most. Like of the performances, his is the one that mm-hmm. makes me lean in and go, what is he doing? Because it's really interesting. Like Peter Berg is kind of a wet blanket um yeah you know a lot of the other characters are just kind of like i'm doing the standard craven thing uh camille cooper whispers everything because she wants to have this like angelic quality to her uh which i'm pretty sure is is craven's note to her um you know but you know whisper everything be like this heavenly angelic figure and i i suppose Pelleggi's horace pinker is kind of the opposite number because everything he says is kind of this snarl or growl um and you know all the all the goofy one-liners, the finger licking good, and take a ride in my Volkswagen, you know all those <laughs> yeah. just dorky, hilarious, campy one-liners that he throws out. What are your favorite one-liners? What are your favorite Horace Pinker one-liners in this movie? I gotta know. God, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, the the Volkswagen one is mine. It's just the wordplay. It's 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 top tier. It's. It's stupid, but it's 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 good. It's real good. Yeah, and I think finger looking good might actually be mine. Apparently, they the MPAA made him cut a scene where he actually spits the guard's fingers out. Right. So you see him take the bite, and then the next thing you know, their fingers are just there on the ground, and he's finger looking good. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, it's kind of too bad they made him cut the gore instead of saying, well, if you cut out, you know, the scene, a few of these scenes between um, Peter Burke. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, what really know, needed cut those, honestly. that's what really needs to be cut you'll have a better movie if we do that absolutely um, <laughs> yeah no I, I completely agree with you there there's i mean like you said um the things that this movie gets right it gets really right uh but unfortunately that it kind of gets lost in the weeds with itself a little bit um and there is some some really fun stuff here the stuff with the uh, the the body swapping thing um what did what did we think of that uh convention again it's i find it really interesting but i wish the film had done more with it personally i i like the particularly the first couple times we see him do it it feels really very novel mm-hmm. and then by the end of the scene in the park you're just kind of like oh, okay i get this yeah it's like i'm 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 good um it, i think that's one of the things with this movie it sort of does the body swapping i love the one between with the uh you know the nurse mm, mm-hmm. that one the first one is kind of awesome um because you don't really know what's happening yeah that's what i love about it is yeah. that it's so it takes you by surprise yeah. particularly if you've read nothing about this movie you're going in kind of completely blind because you think character named shocker he's just going to electrocute people right no, he he body swaps. He rides electrical currents. He doesn't really shock too many people. No. Now this was was this after the hidden had come out or before? I I can't remember. Let me find but, out. 
but um you know it's funny because you know some of these things you know happen you know the hidden obviously is like an alien but um two years after the hidden okay so i you know you kind of some of these things are just end up being in the air you know and so it there are things that happen like that but you know this is before jason did it in uh in jason goes to hell Mm -hmm. and but i think this is what's interesting about the body swapping in this one is it's not really the final destination it's not really the point it's it's starting out with this is a method to get him out of the of the prison this is where he's been so we need to get him out of there how do we do that if we don't have tvs and things like that in there oh let's bodies have electrical energy in them let's let's do it that way and i think that's interesting and i love the first one the first couple of them are pretty good i think I love the, the one at the cop funny. at the door. The cop at the door might be my favorite of all that of them. That one's pretty good. Because it's the way he plays with the tension there when he's like mm-hmm. getting ready to open the door and then the voicemail comes in and says, hey, um, we don't know what happened to this guy. He like escaped from, and then you see him turn to the the peephole and he's got his face is all scarred. I love that so much. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the little girl in the, tra- <laughs> in, the, in the tractor, it's kind of funny to me. I do like the little girl. She is really yeah. funny. Even I love if she it did kind of ruin the limp for us. She she ruined the limp, but she her cursing is hilarious. Children swearing is funny. I don't care it, who you are. It, it, I agree. It, it's, it is. <laughs> so um, I, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, since we're talking about body swapping films, like one of my favorite kind of unknown um underrated films is fallen from 1998 oh yeah that's washington uh-huh. that is that i mean the body swapping thing is the whole conceit of that whole movie and even gives it a fantastic twist at the end um, and i've never seen fallen i need to check that one out you should that that movie is the reason my wife doesn't watch horror movies oh <laughs> she wow saw that i <laughs> she she saw it um years before i ever met her but it really disturbed her <laughs> so completely freaked her out so it was um, like a whole denzel washington is a cop who faces like some weird kind of supernatural and or technological foe like there was fallen there's the bone collector there's virtuosity like denzel washington had a run there in the late 90s fallen is probably the best of those movies i saw virtuosity it was it was bad I haven't I seen it in forever. I, I loved it back when it first came out, but I haven't seen it in forever, so I'm definitely withholding my opinion right now. Russell Crowe is making some choices in that movie. I do remember that. choices. <laughs> Russell Crowe chews scenery like nobody's ever chewed scenery in that movie. I do remember that. Oh, yeah. He is. He just makes some meal out of the out of the art direction there. It's, it's something to watch for sure. Uh, but, yeah, so, I mean, the body swapping, interesting. But, again, I don't think this film really like you mentioned before, Brian doesn't really start singing the way that we want it to until we get to that really the bravura channel flipping sequence mm-hmm. at the end of the film is really, and I think that's where Craven is able to kind of get his point across, which yeah. again, I think gets lost because leading up to it, you've got maybe I think this thing runs just under two hours. So you've got mm-hmm. the better part of two hours. That's, not about the media that's not about i mean you get glimpses of it particularly at the beginning where he's like assembling the tvs and you see the images of violence 
with John Tesh as the news anchor, Heather Langenkamp as the dead body. Right. Um, you see the elements of that kind of at the beginning. And then the movie just kind of forgets that that's the point until right there at the end. And then again, you've got Timothy Leary as the televangelist. Mm-hmm. Like it becomes this really and then the family as well that that might be my favorite part of that whole sequence (laughs) you know i think um you can tell that this this was the part that craven was like this is why i made the movie you know because it's this is that's where he's really showing all of his everything he's learned over the years and um the what budget that he has for this, which is more than he had for a lot of stuff uh, is, is that's where the money went for a lot of the movie. Um, And it's, it's funny. It's energetic. And uh, you know, that 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 the movie hasn't really been up to that point on. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, there are things, you know, like, you know, the power of love is going to draw, uh, Pinker out of other people's bodies. If you place um, Allison's uh, necklace on them, okay, Good Lord, yeah, uh, it's 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 just kind of like you know. I like Allison's. I like her performance in general. I know she whispers everything, but I think she's, she's doing what she was asked to do for sure. She's she's very earnest though, and I think it it sort of lifts what could be, you know, unbearably cheesy, (laughs) Uh, you know, the whole, the love is going to defeat him Mm -hmm. thing. Um, It kind of softens that blow a little bit and makes it work a little better. Yeah. Um, So I think, yeah, I'll, never mind. I'll save that for, for later. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, That's fine. Though I do kind of like when he figures out um, that he can go into the electrical system, like he's he's the his fingers is because he's he's been forced out of a body, and mm-hmm. so he's like, where do I go? Where do I go? He's gonna like he knows he's gonna disappear into nothing, and then he uh, then he realizes the electrical plug is there, and he sort of slowly puts his fingers toward it, mm-hmm. you know, and they and stretch out fingernails like become a socket for him to like actually plug in literally plug into the socket which is cool yeah i thought that was that was cool because there's an element of discovery because i mean i've always wondered i not to bring it back to nightmare all the time but how did freddie figure it out you know how did freddie figure out how to be able to get into people's dreams and that's super cool to me i think that's i think that's probably one of the strengths of the movie is that you don't know you know, but, but at the same time, seeing Pinker figure it out is kind of fun. Mm. I kind of like seeing him figure it out as, as how to, how to get into what ultimately get, ends up being, you know, that television thing. And even before that, you know, how he can get into like, um, his, his, uh, the guy's lazy boy, you know, yeah. in, you the know? vibromatic or whatever it's called. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, he, the eyes in the chair, I mean, it's not, the effect is a little bit, it doesn't really work anymore, but it's still fun to watch it. I had a good time watching it. Like I, I had remembered it from the first time I had seen it and I was kind of waiting for it the whole time. Yeah. Like, I was like, is this where it happened? No, this isn't where it, is this where it, no, it's where it, but 
it comes across and the eyes like pop out and you're just like, ah, that's so cool. And again, that was one of the things that he originally envisioned for Freddie because mm-hmm. he, he did, I read an interview with him that he was talking about the plastic man. And the reason why he wanted to give uh, Freddie the red and green stripes was because you would always be able to tell that it was Freddie because of the red and green stripes, which they did mm-hmm. later in other movies, but not so much in the first one because they didn't have the budget for it. But right. he would be able to, but plastic man was always dressed a certain way. So you could always tell the, by his colors, whatever they were, you know, like orange or, oh, there you go. I'm a big plastic man. I've got like five plastic man toys okay. on my desk right here. That's Huge red. plastic so- man fan, Brian. So you could tell by the red and the yellow that it was Plastic Man was disguising himself as the chair, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and every time. The same thing. So you have the orange jumpsuit. So you could tell that it's Horace Pinker, you know, disguised as the chair right now. And he's going to turn into it. So that's that's uh, totally where it all came from. And Freddie was before that. You know, so like at the ending of Nightmare on Elm Street where the, the top comes down on the car and it's red green stripes right you know it's freddy and so that's that's some of the kinds of things that he was drawing from was just sort of this childhood fandom of plastic man so there you go plastic man is probably and you would have had no way of knowing this plastic man is probably my favorite comic book superhero of all time i had no idea yeah and i love plastic man. wax philosophical about it all and you're like the a huge fan of his and so I, that's awesome I, I have loved plastic man from an early age uh he is like i said my favorite comic book superhero so yeah well I you do, have that you have that in common with wes craven so that's i'm in cool. good company apparently yeah. and i will take it yeah. um yeah but no and that's that's kind of the stuff and again i think in talking about this movie, you kind of have to keep bringing it back to nightmare to some degree. You do. These films are so much in dialogue with each other, or at least I would say this film is so much in dialogue with nightmare because this is Craven trying to retake the reins of Freddie back from Freddie. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what Freddie has become, but I'm the guy who created him. I can do this better. Um, and so that's where you end up with Horace Pinker and again, I think, but for a more focused script and maybe a tighter edit, it probably would have happened. Yeah, that's my feeling of it, too, because like we keep on saying, there's just so much that works in this movie. Mm. Um, and it's it's kind of a shame. I think part of it is he he kind of feels like he wrote this movie a little bit out of spite, <laughs> you know, and it shows. Yeah. And and he didn't do that with the next movie, you know, with, because he had full reign also with alive films for the people under the stairs, which is a wholly original movie. It's one of the best movies of this period of his career um, with the exception of nightmare. And, you know, for me, it's on a level in his career. It's like, it's like serpent and the rainbow. It's on, it's on a level with that movie, which I think is really good too. Um, I haven't seen people under the stairs or serpent in the rainbow. So I'll have to give those a watch. Yeah. Uh, people under the stairs is, I mean, it's very political. It's, it has all those religious themes that uh, he touched on all the way through, you know, all the way up until, uh, the, you know, my soul to take. Um, and all of as far back as the last house on the left, frankly. Um, but it's, and of course the family themes, are all in there and you have you know 
a character named Alice who is sort of an Alice in Wonderland kind of character, but also has sort of an angelic element like Allison in this movie, except she's much younger. Um, so I think people under the stairs feels much more like, okay, I'm just going to make a movie. I'm not going to try and I I'm just going to make a movie that I want to make. I'm not going to try and capture lightning in a bottle because it, it's not possible. Right. And so what happened with Freddie is just is in a way it's a fluke. I mean, how could this little tiny distribution company that, you know, is known for distributing John Waters movies um have one of the most revolutionary horror films ever made. Right. It's ridiculous. It it's is ridiculous. It shouldn't have happened. Mm -mm. But it did. And I Craven is, I think, unique in horror circles for being the guy who redefined the genre single-handedly no fewer than three times. Yeah. Because he times. did it with and Last House on the Left. He does it with mm -hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street and he does it with Scream. Like the guy is just really, really good at, at what he does. But I think all of those times, I don't know that he's really setting out to no. shake things up. It just kind of happens because he, this is what he, happens when he go, when he sets out to shake things up and. Yeah. He tapped into something in the zeitgeist with those movies. Absolutely. Is what happened. He, he, and I think he did it unknowingly, <clears throat> you know, uh, cause uh, Nightmare on Elm Street would have been made it in like 1982, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was, or 1981 even uh, if he had, because he was working on, he he came up with the idea for Nightmare on Elm Street while he was working on The Hills Have Eyes. Um, oh, and you okay, can yeah. see so much of what ended up being in Nightmare on Elm Street and Deadly Blessing from 1981. Um, and, you know, to a much less effective sense i mean but in a way if you didn't have deadly blessing if you didn't have you know the arduous kind of filmmaking he had to do on on swamp thing if you didn't have the tv movies and you didn't have the hills of eyes part two um i don't think you would have the film that you know was made on you know this gorilla budget you know where people practically got electrocuted on the set, you know, and you couldn't pay your crew for days on end. You wouldn't right. have nightmare on Elm street looking like anything of a higher, uh, filmmaking polish than last house on the left without those experiences, you for know? Sure. Um, because, because here's the thing. I mean, last house on the left is, is an incredibly effective movie, but it's also, um, really rough i mean it's 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 an amateur film make film being made you know yes. it's it's got a lot of tonal issues it's got um but it's but what again like this movie what it gets right it gets very right and um it's visceral and powerful and and a gut punch it is an uncomfortable uh, set it's a very uncomfortable movie and he decided he didn't want to make that movie any anymore you know, so when he made even the hills have eyes, I mean, is is vastly more suspenseful. It's um, polished in a whole different kind of level of filmmaking from Last House. It's not as violent, but it still feels like a massive visceral gut punch. Um, 
So it's interesting that he was able to do something like that um, while still having sort of this filmmaking prowess that came in over over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you so can by the time you get to Shocker, filmmaker between The Hills Have Eyes and, or I'm sorry, between Last House and and Nightmare, even between Nightmare and Shocker, for sure. Yeah, yeah. There's just quant- he he was a as a as a craftsman he just made sort of these massive leaps um from period to period you know by the time you get to scream uh it's i mean he doesn't stop evolving as a filmmaker you know after Mm -hmm. he's quote arrived with scream um but he he tried other things he did things you know it's like i'm gonna do i want to do things that are suspenseful hey i'm gonna I finally have an opportunity because I had a money-making movie, a massive money-making movie like Scream. Uh, he was given an opportunity to do uh, the kinds of movies he wanted to make, which were like family dramas. <laughs> you know, yeah. he wanted he wanted to make romantic comedies. There's and no he, music from the heart. There's no Red Eye <laughs> without Scream. Right. I and mean, Red Eye's wanted, a damn good movie too. Red Eye's right? pretty good. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's it's actually actually my wife owns Red Eye. Yeah. So, oh, that's yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. A uh, red eye is, is got, I mean, it's got flaws too, but it's, I think it's a pretty damn good movie. Um, so there's so much, um, here though. Anyway, I, I feel like I'm going off again on, on, you hey. know, it's just, it's just, I find it, I find him more, you know, I find it interesting to be able to watch a filmmaker evolve and to evolve as much as he had. I mean, when you, when you watch something, okay. One of probably my favorite filmmakers, like Martin Scorsese. But oh, yeah. you look at Taxi Driver and you're already just like blown away. And then you get, I mean, how much farther is there to go between Taxi Driver and, you know, I don't know, Goodfellas? I mean, because they're and they're completely different movies, but they're it's not like he's making massive leaps in quality because he didn't, he was already at a certain level. I mean, he was just kind of fresh out of the box this auteur whereas craven really had to learn he really had to be in the trenches and figure stuff out he hardly seen movies when he was making last house on the left that's part of that fundamentalist <laughs> christian upbringing yeah as, as i can attest i mean the first movie i saw in theaters was the movie prancer and i saw it when i was like probably second or third grade because right. the church that we belonged to didn't allow going to the movies. And so when my parents took mm. us to the movies, they were like, you cannot tell anybody that we're going to see this movie. You cannot no. tell anybody at church. You can't, t- we're going to go to the, and they didn't tell us till we were already on our way to the movies. Like we're going to go see a movie. We're going to go see it. And I just thought it was the greatest thing in the world. It's mm. a dumb movie and I haven't seen it since I was a child, but you know, like that's, that's a movie and it's what's it. Sam. It's uh, it's Sam Elliott and Abe Vigoda. I remember that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's a weird, weird little movie, but it was the first movie I ever saw in a theater. And so for that, it, but yeah, I mean, you don't, yeah, you, it's something that in fundamentalist circles, you just don't do very much. Yeah. And I, for, for me, I mean, like I said, I grew up in the church, but I've been seeing movies for as long as I can remember. So, I mean, I mean, we watched them at home, but we never like went to the theater. Yeah. Well, um, VCRs came along when I was a wee laddie. Um, I was, uh, I remember we got ours in 1985. I was seven. Mm. 
when we got our first VCR. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I had seen the re-releases of Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back before Return of the Jedi came out. My parents took me to see Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, because, hey, it's PG, a four-year-old will like this. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's that's a great movie, though. <laughs> yeah, I love that movie. But I, I love mean, Wrath that, of Khan. Seriously, it, that movie scarred me i mean really got under my skin as, i mean as you had a, to watch spock die like it was his I, skin falling off and stuff the thing is i wasn't even remembering the spock dying stuff what i was remembering what i was having nightmares about was the ear stuff the ear parasite thing yep and <laughs> so and what was worse i would the the what it was when it's under the sand before you see it that's what really freaked me out and i think I, that's i can see that that's something that um you know i think about now as a horror fan is the unseen being so scary and so uh wrath of khan were essentially my first lessons in in effective horror film making i think because that unseen element of of that creature being under the sand for so long before you finally see it um you know an et i think was as a little kid was horror filmmaking in some ways too. Cause there's some really, uh, when, before you actually see the, see the creature, it's suspenseful and it's, what is that thing? And, and it's, uh, it screams and it, and it all sorts of crazy stuff like that. I feel the same way about the beginning also of, um, uh, close encounters of the third kind. Yeah. Like when the child gets abducted, it's that kind of same slow build suspenseful filmmaking that I think makes Spielberg such an effective director Mm -hmm. and being able to kind of master those techniques is what I think ultimately ends up making, you know, a a film memorable. Uh, And I think that's what has ended up serving Craven so well over the years is his eventual mastery of those techniques. Well, I think he even masters it with nightmare in a way because freddie you don't really see freddie in the first movie Mm -hmm. he's actually appears in something like eight minutes of the movie i believe that and when you do see him he's always in the dark you never really get a good look at him until nightmare three honestly then he's all of a sudden in bright light and full on and you see everything and that's where, frankly, I mean, I like those movies fine, but I think Freddy stops being scary at that point when you can really Definitely. see him. Definitely. You know? And I think that's what I think. And I think that a lot of that is what Craven is kind of rallying against. And even though I think Pinker is in a lot of ways even brighter than Freddy, I think he maintains a lot of the menace that I think was inherent within that character initially while still managing to be kind of campy and kind of fun at the same time. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty nice balance for the most part with Pinker. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it ultimately works. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 Again, I, I would agree. I kind of rides a line a little bit, but I, you know, I, I like the film. I like the character for sure. I want to talk a little bit about Alive Films, actually, before we get too too much further down the rabbit hole. Um, was founded in the early 80s by Shep Gordon, who was Alice Cooper's manager. Yeah. 
Um, and really set out to let filmmakers make the films, as you had said, Brian, let filmmakers make the films they wanted to make within a particular budget constraint. Um, the first horror filmmaker they signed was John Carpenter. They signed right. him to, I think, a four-picture deal. Uh, he makes ultimately two of those films, Prince of Darkness and They Live, mm-hmm. which is why Alice Cooper is in Prince of Darkness. Uh, and then Carpenter wants out of the contract. And so he ends up signing his next two films over to Craven. And then Craven takes those and makes Shocker, which stars, uh, I think, Cade Roberts, um, Cooper's guitarist, is one of the, is like the construction worker that Pinker jumps into. Okay. Uh, I know that the, um, obviously, No More Mr. Nice Guy right. is, a, is a major uh, musical selection for this movie, but there's also a band that was put together. Um, yeah, one, one of my favorite, my favorite bits about this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Can, the, dude, the Dudes of Wrath. Yeah, the Dudes of Wrath. I just, I, the thing is, I didn't really know much about that until I watched that In Search of Darkness 2 documentary that was just on. They covered that. Um, and so I don't actually know much about the Dudes of Wrath, to be honest. I I have some info pulled up about them because, I mean, this super group is insane when you see everybody that's in it. Um, so you got you got Alice Cooper, obviously. Obviously. Um, let's see. The title song was written by John Bouvard and Desmond Child. So it's composed of Paul Stanley of Kiss. Okay. Uh, and does then the aforementioned Desmond Child on vocals. Mm-hmm. Got Vivian Campbell from Def Leppard. Uh, Rudy Sarzo from White Snake, and Tommy Lee from Motley Crue on drums. Wow. Uh-huh. It also included backing vocals by Van Halen bassist Michael Anthony and Kane Roberts. So just like take a, a, a like a member from every '80s hair band and put them into one group, and there you go. That's insane. I I knew that it, there was a super group. I had no idea they were quite that stacked. That's that's yes. amazing. Insanity. It's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and honestly, the soundtrack for this movie, from what I've read, is was a really big deal. Yeah, like the soundtrack, I think, might have done better than the movie itself. Oh, I'm sure. Because <laughs> um, it it wasn't. Um, I mean, the the soundtrack is really. And the, I think Craven had wanted uh, something more orchestral for the score, but because your producer is Shep Gordon, who is, you know, one of the great rock producers of the time, you're getting a rock score whether you want one or not. So, <laughs> so Craven kind of like conceded that, but I think it works really well. This was uh, also the time though, where, you know, heavy metal and horror were always married together because uh, after like 1986, you get Jason Lives mm-hmm. and um, Tom McLaughlin being sort of a old rock and roller himself. He had been a friend of West, of uh, Alice Cooper's, I think, as well. You know, he uh, he had asked Alice, hey, can you put some stuff on or his, his buddy Vince, <laughs> you know, back when he was Vince, apparently. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> said, hey, can you. Uh, what do you think? 
do you want to include some songs on the soundtrack for Jason Lives? And it's like, yeah. And so they also wrote uh, He's Back, The Man Behind the Mask for the movie. That's right, which is actually a really good, I think a better song than that movie is. But honest, that's my my opinion, but yeah. Oh, I love Jason Lives. Not my favorite of the franchise. Oh, it's it's probably, for me, it's top three. I I, I know a lot of people, it's like their favorite entry. And I watched it, I went, "Eh." Oh, I love it. That was me that's 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 i just i just wrote an article on it for bloody disgusting about part two and six okay and yeah those are two of my favorites i mean final chapter is probably my actual favorite but those two are final chapter is really good yeah those two are not far behind final chapter is my number two my favorite is actually uh the new blood uh jason versus carrie i I really like that one a lot Nobody's perfect. I'm, I'm, I'm teasing. Especially me. I like, I like that one too. All right. You back off. No, it's all good. You know, you know, I got to admit, I got to admit that um, uh, New Blood was, I think, actually the first one I saw all the way through. And I, I like it a lot. I think it's a lot of fun. And, and by that I, point, you know, I was... Kane, Hart, Kane Hodder's first film, I mean, in the franchise. So you got to give it props for that. And it's his best. I think it's his best. I think it may be the best Jason makeup ever. It's pretty good. And it's pretty, pretty pretty awesome you know by that point i, mean, I was so ball. deep into my watch through of nightmare and friday the 13th that by the time i got to that one i was just like okay now we're singing but you know that that's me <laughs> hey fair enough hey everyone's everyone's got their everyone's got their favorites and I, I know a lot of people whose favorite is eight which i don't get at all but you no. know that's just me but hey if you if you love part eight more power to you go for it hey yeah. like the things you like that's fine I agree. Just don't be a dick about it. Exactly. That's that's all. That's all. That's ultimately what what our podcast is all about is like the stuff. Be don't be a fan. Just like stuff. That's our motto. Right. I like so, that a lot. Like what you like. Just don't be a mm. dick about it. Um. <laughs> so, uh, what else do we need to say about Shocker? Um, I think when it comes so much down to, say. it comes down to like a personal responsibility thing. I love the ending. Um, where he says, you know, there's only, uh, I don't, it's in my article. <laughs> I don't think I have it written down here. Um, <laughs> but it's where he says, cause it's the whole sins of the father thing. Um, in nightmare on Elm street, sins of the father is the sins of the father visited upon the children and the parents and children are kind of both powerless to do anything about it, mm-hmm. uh, until the very end. In this one, um, it's like literal sins of the father with uh, Horace Pinker is literally Jonathan's father. And he's like, you're a chip off the old block. You're just going to be like me. Go ahead. Take the knife. Kill me with it. All this sort of stuff. You're just like Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's in your blood. Yeah. And so he takes the knife and he throws it out the window and he says, you know what? You know who my father is? You know who's responsible for me? Me. And it's like, I'm sorry. I can swear on this, right? Go for it. Go okay. off, man. It's, a, it's like Wes Craven is saying to his generational curses, uh, the generational curses doctrine that was no doubt foisted upon him as a child. Fuck you. I'm in charge of me. It has nothing to do with the fact that my father was an angry asshole drunk (laughs) you know i'm in charge of my life Mm -hmm. i think that's 
something that is being exercised in this movie for him. And that's what makes, I think, the ending effective. And also he's saying, turn off your fucking TV. Right. And that's, (laughs) which ultimately is how the movie ends. Everyone, like the power grid goes down and everyone is forced to leave their homes and talk to each other. Yeah. Um, You know, that's, that's literally how the movie ends, um, which is great. You know, and then media is something that he kind of, I mean, for a person that worked so extensively in television and in the movies, and had a fairly active, you know, social media presence. He's pretty, uh, he, he, he's critical of them. Let's put it that way. Uh, Scream is ex- incredibly critical of, of uh, being overly obsessed with movies, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is in its own way um, critical of violence in movies while still showing violence in movies. You know, and I and think then this movie is very much the same way. Yeah, I think so too. And then screen, and uh, frankly, Last House on the Left is too. That all came about of you know what we're seeing in movies is nothing like what we're seeing on television. The real violence that we're seeing from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was like, "We're going to show violence the way violence really is, and it's horrible, and it's messy, and it's gross, and it's painful, and it taints everything." And that's the power of Last House, frankly. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, um, but then even all the way up to scream four, it's, it's social media is going to be a blight on our society is essentially what that movie is saying. I love scream four so much. Oh, um, scream. Okay. I know this is sacrilege, but scream four is my favorite scream movie. I don't blame I, because of the connection that I have with one, one will always be my favorite, but yeah. scream four is so close. My second one. Yeah. So close. Oh my gosh. I, uh, I love Scream. There, there are moments where I'm like, do I like Scream 4 better than Scream 1? And ultimately, I'm like, I don't think I do, but I love I it a lot. finally had to admit it. Good I for you, man. To, I just had to say, you know what? I like Scream 4 better. <sighs> Good for you. Yeah. Um, and I even wrote an article about it, and boy, did a lot of people hate me for that one. Whoa. I, wow. People are mad because someone else voices an opinion? That that just sounds so unlike the internet. I can't even imagine. So unlike the internet. <laughs> Who does that? Well, well, the thing is, I got to say, it was this is funny because, okay, the day that that, okay, John Squires uh, is the editor over at Bloody Disgusting, super mm-hmm. great guy, awesome, super supportive of all his writers, um, also incredibly busy. So I don't get a lot of, hey, your article's going up today kinds of things from him. Sure. You know, it's just all of a sudden, hell, I, I, I was mentioned on on by bloody disgusting and must have an article up that sort of thing gotcha. um, which is totally fine I, I i get it but before scream four one went up he said hey brian uh just want to let you know your article's going up and uh i want you to know everything you said was right on and i i have your back the whole time and i'm like oh shit what am i in for <laughs> that it's honestly though it's good to have that kind of support <laughs> it was it was like and and I have never gotten so many replies to a post from bloody disgusting. It was just like, you know, some people were like, he's right. It is the best one. Others were like, it's the worst one. You suck. You're stupid. Fuck you. All these sorts wow. of crazy. First of all, <laughs> I don't know how you can say scream four is the worst one when scream three clearly exists. So <laughs> I don't, I don't know where you get with that, but 
man. So anyway, uh, it's just, again, just like you were saying, like what you like, man. Just don't Absolutely. be a dick about it. Um, just don't so, be a dick about it. That's yeah, it. Yeah, but I, frankly, I've come to the place where I scream for feels the most authentic to me it feels the most um natural it feels the most poignant feels the most prescient um it just it hits me the best as of it just strikes me as the best of them all and uh and that's not trying to discount the original because i love the original right and i like two and three yeah <laughs> that's, like that's one of those franchises that yeah. doesn't really have a bad movie in it yeah i would say three is the worst one but there's merit in three i do yeah. like three as a part of the whole mm-hmm. but you know it's it's not as good as the others and i'll concede that but yeah, yeah i would scream one is great scream four also really great yeah. so there you go and i just think that media stuff that craven so often dealt with has is gonna be the thing that keeps his filmography living on um and also the fact that he's really dealing with um entrenched uh human nature kinds of political stuff mm-hmm. you know just how horrible we can be to each other <laughs> you know is is sort of one of the themes that keeps coming up and the evil that we're all capable of and some of us are just better at controlling it than others um i think that's a common theme in a lot of his movies as well because yeah there's krug who does horrible nasty things but then then the girl's parents also you know hack him up with a chainsaw right and so it's that (laughs) kind of that that question you know at what point do the terrible what's your breaking point because everyone bears within us this capacity to be that horrible in a way nightmare on elm street is a sequel to uh last house on the left because because krug has come back as freddy krueger and he is uh taking revenge on the parents and the chill on the children of the parents who killed him you know i mean it's just it's it's there's sort of extensions of each other in some ways too it makes a lot of sense and there's a lot of that kind of thing that goes on um there's a lot of dialogue that goes on and i think my soul to take even has uh certain relationships to to shocker Mm -hmm. uh and um and definitely nightmare on elm street and it's just it's it that that movie's grown on me i think it's got its issues too but again i think it's it's one that is flawed but ultimately like really watchable and and there's some really good stuff in there yeah and it's fascinating the stuff that he's trying to get at but um as far as the live films goes i mean the between the two people on the stairs is clearly the better film (laughs) Uh, which i still need to see and I'm, i'm very much looking forward to seeing it particularly after our discussion today yeah well i i hope you i hope you like that one uh as well sure i will uh this film shocker opened on october 27th 1989 uh it opened to 4.5 million dollars it opened in second place Mm -hmm. uh the number one film at the box office uh 11.5 million so it was in a distant second yeah uh it's the amy heckerling film look who's talking Uh, which is what i saw that weekend there you go i'll admit it it's a baby. 
a yeah. baby is who's talking and he talks just like Bruce Willis, which is yeah. And John Travolta's triumphant return, you know, um, his first one, his first one of many, right. Um, <laughs> he's, he's, he's had to come back a lot. Yeah. Um, number three was the bear. What if there was a bear? Oh. The Bear. I, I remember that movie. I remember this year very I've, well. I vaguely remember that movie. I don't know any of the other movies in the top five. Uh, number four is Next of Kin, a Warner Brothers Oh, okay. Film. Yeah, the uh, Patrick Swayze movie. Yeah. Okay, there you go. And uh, number five is Sea of Love. Oh, yeah, Al Pacino. Okay. See, yeah. I I know none of that, so See, I'm really have, glad that you're on. I've only seen the top two, though. I've okay. heard of all the others, but I've only seen the top two. I vaguely remember the bear. I think I remember seeing a trailer for it or something and going, why would I want to see a movie about a bear? Um, it, it was very much kind of of that, if, if I recall correctly, of that Milo and Otis, like, let's just film animals doing stuff and release it as a movie kind of thing. Uh, and then, like, try to film, yeah. film, like, a narrative around it or something. Like, it is weird. That That is, uh, as I understand, that's what it was. Though I heard it was a quite good one. That's what I've heard as well. Yeah. I haven't seen it to to affirm, but I have also heard that it is pretty good. Yeah. Um, this movie, uh, so again, it opened to 4.5 million in its opening weekend, uh, only managed to gross 16.5 million overall. So uh, a box office disappointment, um, obviously not getting those sequels that Craven was hoping for. Uh, it has a tomatometer score of 24%. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, a Metacritic score of 51 out of 100 based on four critic reviews. Uh, the critics consensus huh. on Rotten Tomatoes. I want to read that. With an intriguing enough premise and horror legend Wes Craven on writer-director duty, the real shocker here is just how lame the end results turned out to be, uh, which is kind of unfair. Yeah, I uh, think that's unfair. I It's... I got to get tomato meter approved, man. So I can, you really do. So get I can, on that, man. I can, I can uh, get that, you know, knocked up by, you know, 1%. Hey, every little, little, little bit helps. <laughs> uh, and then the letterboxed score is uh, out of five is a 2.8. Uh, Brian, as our guest, how did you rate shocker out of five? I actually gave this one on letterboxd a three and a half, which is to me, that's a solid movie that's a really it's a solid movie that's got a lot going for it but it's not going to change your life you know kind yeah, of movie. good seven out of ten yeah yeah brett what about you um i said yeah, i gave this a three which i think i gave it a two and a half last time i watched it so it's yeah. gone up a full half a star rating so well there you go uh yeah. whereas i this one maintained a three for me like i was a three the first time i watched it it's a three this time which is what the guys in the blank check podcast would call a gentleman six um, it's, it's a solid movie and I, I quite enjoy it. It's one that I will probably own on, on Blu-ray one of these days. Um, it's, it's There's just a real nice scream factory edition of it. I got to say this. I think factory that's the one on my wish list right yeah. now. Yeah. I, I, I recommend that one cause it's a, it's a real nice looking of course, and got a few nice little features on it. So, Hey, I, I don't know if this is a hot take or not, but scream factory, a uh, good organization. <laughs> Oh my gosh, searing. <laughs> I uh I got there uh I, I bought like just a bunch of DVDs like about a month or so ago or a bunch of Blu-rays and I ended up with their editions of Prince of Darkness, In the Mouth of Madness, American Werewolf in London, 
Um, I think maybe one or two other. I bought like six movies altogether, um, but I got a lot of their editions as well. And I was, those were the ones I was most excited about to kind of open and, and go through and look at the special features on. Yeah, they're, man, I, I'm always buying their stuff as much as I can, you know. Yeah, as much as they, finances will allow. It's good product. It's 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 a boutique, uh, you know, uh, entertainment label. So obviously, it's going to be a little pricey, but mm-hmm. you get what you pay for. And uh, I've I've never been unhappy with one of my purchases from Scream Factory or Shout Factory, for that matter. So. Yeah, yeah, I just got some Shout Factory stuff as well, because um, I don't. This may come as a shock, but I do not only watch horror movies. Uh, as someone who follows you on Twitter, I know this. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I actually, you actually have a very eclectic um, taste in movies, I would say. I try. Um, it's, you know, I, I know that in this day and age, y'all are supposed to have a brand and all that stuff, but I, I just don't. I just like lots of different kinds of things. I mean, the posters behind me on the wall, I've got Magnolia. and I Yo saw Jimbo. Magnolia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've got a Yojimbo poster back there and King Kong and Frankenstein, all sorts of stuff in here. So I, uh, life's too short just to stick to one, one thing. (laughs) I just want to know as much as I can about as many things as I can. So I completely agree. And I think that's a really good attitude to have, uh, quite frankly. Um, Brian, thank you so much for coming on. It has been an absolute delight. Seriously. Come back anytime. Uh, we would love to have you on again. Uh, tell us a little bit about Movies for Life. Tell us about um, some of the things that you've either written or have coming up at Manor Vellum and Bloody Disgusting. The floor is yours. Plug away, sir. Oh, okay. Um, well, uh, I'll start with Movies for Life. I co-host it with Michelle Egan. Um, and we have, what we do is we each bring a movie on a subject each time that we record. And um Boy, we've just got had some really eclectic double features <laughs> that we've ended up doing. Um, some of them have been really surprising. I think some that have been really fun. Uh, we did uh, Shadow of the Vampire and Ed Wood uh, nice. together, which was a lot of fun as our um, movies about the making of a real movie. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done a couple that are like the movie movies about the making of a fake movie. Um, in that case, it was... Singing in the Rain and One Cut of the Dead, which is one of my favorite double features we've ever done. That's amazing. Yeah, it was beautiful. I, I it, we couldn't have even imagined that would be as good of a double as it what turned out to be. That's awesome. Um, a couple that we have come up coming up. We're doing uh, One Foot of the Cuckoo's Nest and Magnolia. Uh, we've got Targets and Matinee, um, which was a great discussion. That um, sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so we've got we've got lots of stuff. We have about uh, fifteen episodes up at this point, um, and just a few more in the can <laughs> uh, that were that are ready to go uh, bef- after they're edited, of course. Um, yeah, so it's been a great experience. Um, Michelle and I have become really good friends in the process, and have just really enjoyed doing doing that show together. It's been awesome. It's it's a really fun listen. I've I've started getting into it within the last couple of weeks, and I've I've had a lot of fun. I think I've made it up through the uh, the space. So I'm early still, but the space camp jumping Jack Flash oh. <laughs> episode, which is again speaking of really b- bizarre, just bonkers double features. That's that's definitely one. 
Well, that was, um, you know, just like childhood favorites that we each had. And, right. You know, so that was that ended up being that was one of our first episodes. That was a lot of fun to do. Um, but yeah. So we're really happy with how the show is shaping up. We think it's getting better and better. And um, yeah, we just hope that people continue to listen. Uh, as far as Bloody Disgusting, I have a column there uh, that I'm really proud of. It's um, about classic horror. It's called Gods and Monsters, um, where I just look at movie, mostly pre-1970s um, movies, horror films. And um, I've done The Innocents. I've done... Phantom of the Opera, 1925. I've done uh, Dracula, 1931. Um, coming up, I actually broke my rule slightly and went into 1971. Uh, so upcoming in about a week or so is uh, The Abominable Dr. Fibes, Ooh. which is one of my... Uh, I almost wish it didn't have a sequel because I'd come on and talk about that one. I was, I actually, <laughs> I think I saw you watching that and I was like, does that one have a sequel? And I was like, oh, it does. Blast. Come on and talk to Vincent Price. Yeah. So the sequel's pretty good too. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I'm a big uh, Vincent Price, uh, Vincent Price fan, and so I'm, I'm diving into some stuff with him, uh, as it's this month is his 110th birthday. So, uh, so I'm doing a little bit um, about that uh, for for bloody disgusting. Um, and I just, I don't, I, I will. I'm just amazed that John keeps taking my pitches and I am excited that I'm able to do this. And so there's that, uh, Manor Vellum. Um, like we said, the third part of the Wes Craven series is coming out. Um, that's the farthest I've written. Uh, is, it's so is good. It like the first two parts are, I highly recommend them. We'll definitely link to them, uh, on our social media accounts, uh, when this episode goes live. No, well, uh, thank you. Cause they are, they're absolutely fantastic. And I've of course been retweeting them from my own personal Twitter account for, uh, for, I, I guess since the first one dropped really, cause I yeah, had such you, a fun time with it. Yeah. You've been, you've been great about, uh, helping me to promote that. And I really appreciate it. Um, cause you know, when I get something on bloody disgusting, I know a lot of people are going to read it, mm -hmm. you know, or at least are going to click on it and hate on it or love it or whatever. I, sure. That's fine. That's, that's, it's a big website. Whereas stuff from Manor of Vellum, it's, it's a little, little site, you know, there's only a few of us that write for it. Um, you know, trying to sort of get things going still. And, uh, it, it's, uh, it doesn't have a massive readership, but, um, but some of my most personal and some of the favorite stuff I'd, I've written has been for, for that little site. And so um, hoping, I just hope that, you know, it gets out there and people see it. Uh, another piece I wrote for there was uh, one on the shining and Dr. Sleep, which mm. I'm particularly proud of um, from a while back. And, um, the changeling, I did a piece on the changeling. I did a piece on targets. Um, I've done... you did a piece there about the, uh, 1979 Dracula. Did you know? I did. Which is the episode that honestly was supposed to, it's the one we recorded in place of the original shocker episode. So right. Full circle. It's, it's crazy. That was actually part of a series that I did on, on, uh, vampire movies of 1979, like Gothic vampire movies. So I did, uh, one on Nosferatu, the Herzog Nosferatu. So good. Uh, I did one on, 
on Dracula 79. And then I did another one on Salem's Lot, which is okay. sort of a modern gothic. And it was really interesting to look into that. So no love at first bite. I didn't do love at first bite. <laughs> I, uh, it was the one that didn't count for me. I, I decided not to do that one. Uh, Fair enough. <laughs> if you do ever want to come on and talk about it, George Hamilton keeps threatening us with a sequel. So, Oh yeah. Come on and yeah. talk about that one. If you want, <laughs> you know, that's one of those, uh, those I've, I haven't seen it in years. I remember my, I, what I was, uh, taken from my guitar teacher, we would talk a lot about horror movies and movies in general. And, uh, he said, Oh, you got to see love at first bite. You'll love it. And it's like, so, okay. So I, I gave it a look and, uh, that was my first experience with George Hamilton. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I just don't know how a vampire can be that tan but you know, no that's, that's what i thought too that doesn't uh, make much sense to me but yeah yeah uh so um yeah th those are the main things i also i i dropped some stuff over at council of zoom uh from time to time i've got a script for a video on kurosawa and how it sort of changed the western genre uh his movies helped to sort of redefine westerns oh i like um, that coming up uh as it's going to be a youtube video so it took a little it's i've turned that in a long time ago but they're they're editing that all together now very cool um so that's pretty cool and that's a that's a cool site to check out too um council of zoom.uk if or .co.uk if if anyone is ever uh interested in looking for some different interesting perspectives on lots of different kinds of movies there so and i've done some stuff at f this movie ghastly grinning and around the web. So, um, so you're all over the place is what you're saying. Um, yeah. I mean, most of what I'm doing right now, just because, uh, you know, because of the busyness of school and work and all this stuff has just been ha focusing on, on, uh, on manner and bloody disgusting, but, uh, I'm trying to get the, some things in motion that'll help me be able to write a little bit more often for some of these other sites as well. Cause I really, really dig, uh, writing for these places too. Yeah. I hope you're able to get that taken care of because I enjoy reading what you write. So oh, I want to see you do more of it. Well, that's very kind of you. I really appreciate you having me on and, uh, and for all the support you've given me for those that work over the past, I don't know, several months since hey. we first met on the pond, the pendulum. Yeah. Well back. So yeah, we did. Uh, so if you guys have listened to uh, the pod and the pendulum, we have had Mike Snoonian on this podcast before I actually just appeared on their army of darkness episode not long ago, but I love that episode, by the way. Great episode. Thank you. We had a lot of fun with that one, uh, obviously. And you had to do it one and a half times. So yes, go. that was the best. <laughs> it's great. Cause we're sitting there, we're talking, having a really good conversation. All of a sudden you just see Mike's face go completely white and he goes, Oh shit. And we all knew immediately, oh, he didn't hit record. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah, but I mean, we were, it was fine. We, hey, we just get to talk about Army of Darkness some more. Yeah. Um, but we actually, you and I met doing uh, their Halloween script reading for Dennis Atchison's Halloween 4 script. Uh, and then we were able to do it again for, I guess it's coming up uh, probably pretty soon on their feed, uh, the Kerry yeah. Fukunaga's It Chapter, two, it chapter 1. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've we've gotten a chance to do that a couple of times, and it's been a lot of fun both times. Yeah, for sure. Um, but Brian, thank you so much. We have had again just such a blast talking to you about Wes Craven. Seriously, come back anytime. We would love to have you um, back anytime for any any failed franchise starter you want to talk about. Just let me know, and we'll uh, we'll definitely get it. Uh, All right, sounds good. Done. All right. Well, this has been uh, the most shocking episode ever 
of the disenfranchised podcast. Um, Brian, where can we find you on, uh, on social media? Cause we, you just noticed that you just told us you're not quite unplugged yet. So where can we find you on social media? Uh, you can find, it's very creative. Uh, you can find me at Brian D Kuiper on Twitter and all my writing lives there. Uh, you can find, uh, the podcast at movie life pod. And, uh, we hope you'll find us there. I mean, to be honest, I don't know. We, we try and, uh, we try and be good about posting. Um, but we're not very good at it. I understand. Um, so I try and try and keep it, try and keep it. Hey, we got a new episode and, uh, Hey, this is what's coming up, but I'm, I'm not very good about it. Sometimes like, oh. I'm, that's honestly, that's exactly hundred percent what I do. It's like, Hey, this is the next episode. And then, Hey, this is the episode that just dropped. And then usually like radio silence the rest of the time. Yeah. Not intentionally, it's just kind of how it works out most of the time, but it's, it's tough. I mean, just, it is. you know, because, oh, I, I, Twitter is one of those, it's a, it's a fickle, fickle beast. So it is, it is indeed. Yeah. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at disenfranch pod. You can shoot us an email at disenfranchpod at gmail.com. Uh, let us know what movies uh, you would like to see us cover, and we will try to get those on our list. Uh, we just got an email from our buddy Tucker, who sent us a, a little list of uh, some movies that he has been uh, keeping track of for us uh, that he wants us to see us do. So I'll, I'll run that through with you here in a little bit, Brett, because it's, it's a pretty good list. Wonderful. Um, but uh, yeah, and uh, definitely uh, head over to uh, wherever you get your podcasts and write us a, a little review. Uh, five stars, preferably, please. And thank you, especially if it's Apple podcasts. Uh, and if you let us know a movie you want us to cover there, we'll try to rush that one into production uh, as well. I am on Twitter, letterboxed and Instagram at Chewy Walrus. Brett, such as you are on social media, you unplugging person, you, where can we find you? Uh, I'm on letterboxed at gunslinger fire and I'm on Instagram at sus underscore warlock. All right. Well, that is all we have for uh, this particular episode. Thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Stephen Foxworthy. For my co-host, Brett Wright, and our guest, Brian Kuyper, no more Mr. Nice Guy.